Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, go for it. Good morning, everyone. It's the one and only V, the Grill Economist, coming to you live with the one and only London Paul. And, folks, if you haven't got a chance to check out London Paul's website, theseriousreport.com, that's spelled S-I-R-I-U-S, theseriousreport.com, I recommend you go there. I recommend you go there, and I recommend that you subscribe to his exclusive membership. That membership has a wide range of people that are on there right now who are enjoying the daily briefings that they get from London Paul himself. You will get the play-by-play what's going on geostrategically, geoeconomically, geosocially, and geopolitically. Everything that you need to know to keep abreast about the latest developments in the world. It's cheaper than a Starbucks latte. And you're paying that price $4.75 per month. And you don't have to run the risk of running into a heroin addict shooting a needle in Starbucks, in a Starbucks bathroom. You don't have to worry about that. It's complete safety. You can do it in the safety of your own home, of your home. That's the beautiful part about the seriousreport.com, folks. From the safety of your own home or your mobile device, you can get those downloads from Paul himself. Listen to it. Learn yourself and educate yourself. Now, if you're one of these people that are QAnon fanatics, uh, sorry, this is not the place for you to hang out. Uh, we're not uh, huge fans of uh, of the of the of this uh, uh, LARPer or whatever the heck it is, an intelligence, whatever the heck it is, a Pied Piper operation. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. So, if you're a QAnon fan, fanatic, you don't want to go to the series report because you're going to get your feelings hurt, and you might not, you might get triggered, and you might not like it. Okay, but other than that, for people who are critical thinkers, you like to think critically. You're not married to paradigms. You like to look at things objectively. You like to be educated. You like to know the goings-on so you can learn and expand your knowledge. Then by all means, go. All means, go to theseriesreport.com. Get that membership, $4.75 per month. I spent more on one cup of coffee yesterday than I did. It's, it's amazing. Then, then It cost more than the four seventy five. That's your support is charging you. So without further ado, London Paul, welcome back, sir. How are you? Yeah, good morning, V, and good morning, afternoon, and evening to anyone, wherever they might be listening. I'm fine, and yourself? I'm hanging in there, Paul. I'm, I'm very elated, as I was telling you before we went live. I'm very elated that Miss America has gotten rid of this, this, uh, this, 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 this patriarchal, sexist, misogynistic, uh, you know, physical requirements for beauty. I'm I'm glad that that's over with. It opens the floodgates gl- uh, uh, for transsexuals uh, and for those who identify as another gender. Uh, for those who haven't been paying attention, I am now gender identifying as peanut butter. So that gives me a chance to put on an evening gown and get up on this great gala that is called Miss America and show the world, Paul, what I'm all about. Well, we look forward to that. <laughs> it'll add a whole new dimension to the word entertainment 
he is a dunce. <laughs> oh my god! Where, where do we begin, man? Do, do we begin the 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 the, 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 the social part and the insanity in the West? Did you hear about well, the, what I'm what I'm <laughs> I'm dubbing for Stockton, California, Paul? Okay, well, they're they're coming out, they're rolling out universal income because it works so well in Finland, right? They're they're rolling it out over here in Stockton, California. I'm calling it the free shit Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's well. It's any 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 way just to to get people to vote for you, I guess. And, um, Unreal, but, uh, man. Unreal. But yeah, the I thought we'd start with something that the to do with the whole JCPOA era of, within the Obama era, and there's something that's kind of quite interesting that came out is that apparently the Obama administration, well, obviously the Treasury Department, they issued a license in February 2016. That would have allowed Iran to convert nearly six billion dollars it held at a bank in Oman from obviously the Omani currencies, Iran, into euros by exchanging them first into US dollars. Now, tellingly, if the Omani bank had allowed the exchange without such a license, clearly it would have violated sanctions that barred Iran from transactions that touched the US financial system. However, <laughs> what's kind of in well, it's kind of amused me anyway. It's the fact that the Obama administration then went to two U.S. banks who refused to do it because they were afraid of running foul of U.S. sanctions. So they declined to participate. I mean, it's kind of quite unbelievable that an administration says, please, will you do this? And they go, no, because we're terrified of being sanctioned. <laughs> it, just does, it just beggars belief. But apparently they refused because they cited this reputational risk of doing business with or for Iran. Now, obviously, issuing the license is, is not a problem. But obviously, from most people's perspective, this goes way above the, what the Obama administration agreed to do with the nuclear deal. However, what this then proves is the reason they ended up shipping pallet loads of money was because they couldn't get the banks to agree to do this. And that's why pallets of money got shipped to uh, to Iran, not some kickbacks, backhanders, or anything else. I'm sorry if that upsets anyone, but if we're dealing with realities, let's deal with realities. That's why this undoubtedly would have happened. But it, it's just staggering that even American banks, after being asked by the Obama administration to do it, refused to do it because they were worried about future repercussions. That shows the fear that exists inside the, the US, never mind what the European Union or other nation's going to do in the fear of sanctions when your own banks are frightened of doing it that speaks volumes for for how much fear there is regarding being sanctioned but again it you know it's there's the whole thing that truth is you know is is kind of often stranger than fiction and people will like to imagine that there was some you know clandestine operation that's why all this money was shipped in um into uh iran on planes well no simply because no one would sanction allowing money to be transferred to the Iranians. And bear in mind, Iran or the U.S. has about 100, between 100 and 150 billion dollars worth of Iranian assets frozen that Iran wants, yeah. wanted back. That's all it is. They're just Whatever else went on or may have gone on is, is irrelevant in the respect of this. And if there was some deals going on, it certainly didn't involve things the way, the way people you know, understand it to be. And I think it's interesting that it came about that, the, that this was a deal. I think it's just 
only sort of very recently come to light that that's the case. So, but it's an interesting development nonetheless, and and puts the whole context of the JCPOA in some regards in a different light. Okay, there's probably aspects to it we don't understand, and we probably never will understand. But in that regard, that is most likely why they ended up shipping pallets of money to them because it was the only way to get to actually get physical dollars to them because no no bank would touch them, even US ones. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's kind of crazy what's going on. the The Italian crisis, Paul. The Italian crisis that's happening over there, the blowback, the back pressure that this is causing to Deutsche Bank and the rest of the eurozone, the banks are really nail biting because how much they, they know they cannot put uh, that much electrical or electronic duct tape on the derivative bomb that is festering over there. Uh, what's your take? No, absolutely. And we said last week that. You know, there was all this idea oh, they're going to put a technocrat government in, and we said no, that wasn't the case, and it was very likely to dissolve. Well, and it most certainly dissolved very rapidly because, as we said intelligently, um, the the Italian coalition realised what they needed to do in order to have a government elected, and instead of of, of putting uh, the economic minister in, they put him into another role, and they actually managed to put another guy in who is equally Eurosceptic. But the, the long and short of it is that uh, Italy has a government now that is hell-bent on doing everything the European Union and the Brussels doesn't want, i.e. it wants sovereignty, it wants to tackle immigration, it wants an end to Russian sanctions, it wants to actually get rid of austerity and actually have a proper managed economy that tries to... I mean, I, I don't think it's going to succeed in the short or even the long term because... Italy so heavily indebted, but at least they're trying to do the right things rather than going, well, austerity is the answer to everything. Let's cripple an economy and make it so it's totally inefficient. And that's the way to reduce a deficit. Well, everyone knows that it never works and it never will work. But yeah, they, they're causing a massive headache. And, 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 and of course, when you factor in Deutsche Bank, and either, at the end of the day, the European Central Bank will have to do everything to keep the Deutsche Bank going because if it doesn't, then the whole eurozone will collapse, and in the process of the, the contagion effect, will collapse the US banks and and obviously UK banks, etc. In the process, so they will have to do everything to prop it up and keep it going. But I mean, it's been in the intensive care unit longer than we care to remember. And at one point, there was a lot of speculation that the Chinese might be back backstopping it because they bought a significant stake in it. Well, they've reduced their stake, so they've made it perfectly clear they've got no intention of doing that because there was strong suggestions and a belief at one point that they saw Deutsche Bank if you stripped out all the the um, the sour assets etc that it could be a useful bank for them in Europe and there's an argument to suggest that had some validity but subsequently of course that's now proved to not be the case but the issue of course is we know and we've spoken before the Italian banks are hugely indebted and are in serious trouble and the problem is if the Italian banks go down, the French go down, and therefore because the Germans are on the hook, as we said, for 95% of the French debt, then Germany goes down in the process. So it's a kind of double, triple, quadruple whammy effect that's, that's going on in Europe. But it's only indicative of increasing numbers of European nations who are saying we've had enough of the European Union as it is. And, and really, this is no surprise because we've said all along the European Union as it exists now is doomed. It's it's dead and buried. It's finished. It's over. It's just a matter of when, not if. And gradually, 
nation after nation's turning its back on the whole Brussels model. And uh, maybe in a bit we can talk about Austria and Russia and Putin's visit to uh, to Vienna because that is another significant step in in the direction of breaking up Brussels, um, the Brussels-led European Union, which is totally you know, technocratic, it's totally dictatorial, it doesn't allow nations to express any sovereignty. What's Italy going to do? They're going to just say, I'm sorry, we're having our sovereignty back and we'll do precisely what we want. And, of course, they're going to have the full backing of the Italian people because they're sick of, of the immigration problem that has made large parts of southern Italy no-go areas and the Isle of, of Sicily is a major problem. So they, they want to see an end to austerity. They want to see an end to, to sanctions because the truth is there's not a nation on the planet who doesn't say this Russian sanctions is an utter farce. It's, it's not benefiting anyone. In fact, the only nation who seems to be benefiting from it is the Russians. And, and we're all suffering. And in the process, the problem the European Union's recognizing now is, well, Russia's diversified into other economies. So even if the sanctions wall falls down, how are we going to encourage Russia to come back and do business with us? Because you know, they've already diversified to other nations in terms of buying you know, um, or importing various produce. So they, why, why would they now turn their backs on these other nations? They're not like to. So it's going to be very hard for the European Union nation to, to, for the Russians to, to agree to work with them anyway. But that's something that needs to happen because the European Union is suffering. Even Germany suffered quite significantly at the hands of it. And Italy is, well, it's very difficult to ascertain precisely, but it's probably lost billions of, in the last four years and more, tens of billions perhaps of, of trade because of sanctions and something we can discuss, as I say, with respect to, to Austria because they fall into that category as well, as does every other European nation. So it's very much Italy's the tipping point. We said way back probably a year ago that Italy would ultimately be the nation that will bring the European Union down and it's it's very hard for anyone to bet against it the the point is though it's kind of less that nations will exit the European Union now it's just an implosion of the European Union just by simply the fact that Italy starts to behave like a sovereign nation and do everything the European Union doesn't want to to happen it will cause the implosion because imagine, for example, they say, well, we're refusing to pay. We adapt, We want a debt jubilee for 250 billion or 500 billion euros. We're refusing to pay. Or if, if you don't like it, we'll just default on the debt. What's the European Union going to do? I mean, okay, yeah, but there's things they could do. What are they going to start doing? Just as they're talking about winding up QE, they're going to go, Archie, we're just going to have to pump a trillion euros into the um, into the European Union economy because Italy's just decided to default on its debt. And and if they default, the nations will go, well, we'll default on the debt as well. So it causes a huge problem. So the Europe and the European Union can't bully Italy like they bullied Greece because of how the banking structure is held together. And as we said, if Italy's banks go down, the French banks go down and therefore it creates a contagion effect the European Union can't control. Whereas with Greece, they're able to bully them in, into submission because they weren't, they weren't obviously, you know, they didn't have a, a large enough economy to make a huge dent in the European Union. But Italy's the third largest economy, which may surprise some people, but that's the reality of, of what's going on there. Paul, 
the situation in Asia, Korean Peninsula in particular, uh, we know recently that uh, President Trump uh, did meet with Kim. Uh, it was uh, a few days ago. Uh, did you know about that? No. Yeah, the meeting <laughs> took place with Kim, it, but it was the wrong Kim. It was Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> well, I I'm mean, we've today, got <laughs> you are on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> well, you can't say he well, didn't meet with Kim. He did. He did. Uh, well, he's due to meet in what on the twelfth. So um, it's all systems go again. So it remains to be seen what's happen, what will happen in that regard. But it comes back to the point. There's all this idea that. You know, the North Koreans are bending over backwards um, and doing everything to accommodate the U.S. It's just not the case. I mean, why do we think the Chinese have been, you know, Xi Jinping's meeting Kim Jong-un? Why do we think Putin, or sorry, Lavrov's meeting him? And why do we think all these negotiations and discussions are going on? And effectively, the reality is, and even though we've said it before, is the Trump administration walked away from the deal, and that was all to do with Bolton and people like that. And then somebody had a discussion with Trump and said, you simply cannot walk away from this deal. And that's why rapidly they're back on track. And we just hope something fruitful comes out because it's one way the U.S. can can start to reestablish its credibility on the world stage by doing the right thing. But the fear factor always is it's not Trump. It's it's the neocon elements who've hijacked U.S. foreign policy or trying to. I think there's been they've had a bit of a side swipe with regards to uh, to North Korea, and that's a, you know a, a fantastic thing. And what did Putin said? It was a courageous and mature decision that Trump's made with regards to North Korea. Why did he say that? Because he knows full well that it's not the Trump Trump's decision to to back away from the deal. He knows Putin that the pressure that Trump's under from the neocon elements who've, who have. I mean, Bolton has effectively tried to hijack U.S. foreign policy. And that's hugely damaging to the Trump administration. And it's precisely why, in the end, you know, the U.S. walking away from the JCPOA was not a good idea. And it, they should not have done it. Okay, they've done it. Uh, their attitude towards Syria, I mean, Trump's all for one minute, let's leave and, and pull out of Syria. Then we have this bogus... Um, you know, chemical weapons attack that they blamed on 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 Assad, which was complete nonsense. And obviously, subsequently, there was the U.S. coalition missile attack. But ironically, and it's worth mentioning, it wasn't a U.S. coalition because the British and the French didn't launch a single missile at Syria. They flew sorties, but they didn't launch any missiles. They left it to the U.S. ultimately to do that. Why? Because they know full well it wasn't the right thing to do. But I mean, at the end of the day, what's happened's happened. But it's certainly not advantageous. I mean, and we can discuss some interesting developments internally within the US in a minute. But the US foreign policy at the moment is not working out the way it should be. Now, hopefully the Trump administration can regain control and wrestle the initiative away from the likes of Bolton. But the question is, why did he ever agree to put Bolton in place in the first place? I mean, because everyone knows historically what Bolton was like. And it, if you go back to Trump's inauguration speech, one of the big things that came across from that is we've got no intention of, I mean, he didn't say it explicitly, but implicitly, he said, 
effectively, we're not going to have any neocon influence and elements within my administration in terms of our governance. And then what a, what happens a year or so later, that's precisely what's happened in terms of foreign policy. And it's causing the US to make some pretty erroneous decisions. And, and one aspect of that is this ongoing feud with China, which is not at all dissipating. I mean, one minute, well, we're not imposing sanctions on, you know, we've agreed, uh, sorry, tariffs and that's all going to stop. And then the U.S. immediately slaps uh, tariffs on um, Chinese products. Then we had just very recently two U.S. B-52 bombers flew within 20 miles of the militarized Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. You got Mattis warning of consequences if Beijing continues what he says weaponizing the South China Sea and, it, sea and accusing China of intimidation and coercion in the Indo-Pacific region. And, and, and saying Washington's got zero plans on leaving this heavily disputed area. Of course, China's response was, well, any comments coming from other com countries in that regard can't be accepted. And they're completely furious about it. Then the Pentagon denied it, saying it was a routine training mission that left from Anderson Air Force Base to the Navy support facility at Diego Garcia. And then... And then uh, apparently then the U.S. Pacific Command said, well, we intend to maintain the readiness of U.S. forces. And that's why we're doing readiness of U.S. forces to do what? Bomb, bomb Korea? I mean, what, what, what exactly are they ready for? I mean, this is just mm. very inflammatory language. Yeah. Okay, and and uh, well, in mean, the process. Paul, you, know, you said it best. It's very inflammatory language. I mean, look at Bolton's latest uh, picks for uh, to, to be, uh, you know, strategic advisors. You know, Sarah Tinsley and Garrett Marquise. These people are psychos. And, and, and this is all coming from, I mean, ever since Bolton came in, we have a very hyper aggressive rhetoric now all of a sudden. It's crazy. Yeah, and and what makes it worse is with regards to the likes of the Spratleys. In the same breath, you know, this is this is the kind of neocon element that's that's having all this high octane rhetoric and this inflammatory uh, military exercises. And the Trump administration in the next breath going to Beijing, well, we really could do with you help, you know, helping us with cooperation on North Korea. You can do a lot to to help us in that regard. And then in the next breath, there was a journalist asked about the ability of the Pentagon to blow, literally they said to blow apart these Chinese artificial islands. And the director of the joint staff said, I would just tell you that the United States military has a lot of experience in the West Pacific taking down small islands. I mean, seriously, what are they playing at? This is, this is madness talk. And then the Chinese, I mean, you know, the, the foreign ministry has, has been very, benign for years and and i mean so outspoken i mean they they accused you know when the u.s accused china of militarizing the islands they said it's like a thief crying stop thief you know that the chinese <laughs> are furious with this they just had enough of the rhetoric and uh, and then but then that you can see the contradiction because you can see what the trump administration on the one hand is trying to do what these neocon elements are trying to do in regard to foreign policy because you know, the ZTE has now signed an agreement in principle with the U.S. that's going to lift this commercial development ban that was supposed to be in place for seven years. So it shows that on the one hand, they can do some very positive things with China. But 
in terms of the, in in terms of the tariffs on the one hand, they they seem persistent with this, and they're not going to give in. And China simply will not accept it. And then militarily, they're challenging them in the in this whole southeast region. But to say that you know the U.S. needs to be ready, they ready for what? I mean, and that's of course also causing a lot of consternation in North Korea because their attitude is, "What are you are you inferring? It's us that you you know you need to be battle ready for." Because bearing in mind just how far exactly is North Korea from the U.S. I mean, just, I mean, this is the problem. You can't you can't Paul, accuse China of militarizing islands. The you're, not, you're not trusting the plan, Paul. You're not trusting the plan. No, clearly not. <laughs> but um, but then internally within the U.S., there's been some pr- sort of developments, that, and I think it should put things in context and i know it'll frustrate some people but we have to deal with realities actually someone got really annoyed with me about rea- talking about realities and use some pretty offensive language but anyway that's beside the point because i don't care what they said but there is a reality because obviously there's this much awaited inspector general report you know michael horowitz's report which is due which was due uh, yesterday and is now coming out on the 11th and it's supposed to detail the Bureau's handling, the FBI's handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation. Now, apparently, there's there's now statements being said that the DOJ and the FBI are deliberately attempting to s- sort of slow the process and redact huge proportions of, uh, sorry, portions of this report. Now, this has come out via a lot of congressional officials, so I think it has some some weight in it. And one official is, was quoted as saying that he'd been trying to obtain documents from the DOJ and the FBI, and it, they thought it was no surprise they're putting pressure on Horowitz because they continued to slow down the production of documents. Apparently, they failed to adhere to congressional oversight, and there's concern that this could drag on and on. Well, it, I mean, hopefully it will happen on the 11th, but chances are it could drag on into the summer. And then, obviously, they're going to heavily redact the documents now. Horowitz himself informed the lawmakers about three weeks ago that this report, supposed to be about 400 pages, was entering its final stages. But the Senate Judiciary com- uh, hearing is supposed to now happen next Monday, and it's going to be live streamed for public viewing. So that could be quite interesting. But and there's certain sources suggesting that the you know FBI's seventh floor under Comey's directorship is going to be well, the report on that's pretty damning and worse than expected, and but the, the question is, don't build your hopes up too much. This is the problem you have. There's a lot of this idea, oh, well, someone will just write reports and then that will set this huge chain reaction going on. It's not as simple as that because the corruption inside the U.S. administration is so widespread. You'd have to remove every element of corruption to ensure that there wasn't the risk of things being snow, slowed down, the risk of of a lack of congressional oversight, et cetera, et cetera, or the risk of heavily redacted material in reports. Now, okay, the flip side is that Nunes can put a lot of pressure on the DOJ and the FBI by demanding all the documents delivered to the House Intel Committee in unredacted form. But the truth is, when is the DOJ and the FBI going to stop obstructing oversight unless the Congress threatens them with contempt charges. Now, is Congress at any point in the very near future likely to do that? I think not. So it's not a very simple situation that 
someone says something and then this whole cascade of events happening. It's a long, drawn-out process. And I will see, obviously, what happens with regards to Horowitz's report. And where, But, you know, people might end up being frustrated going, well, it hasn't produced the outcome we wanted, but it's never going to happen that quickly. It's, it, it's a very, very difficult process to handle. And when you still, I mean, who knows the, the depth of corruption inside Congress, the Senate, inside the DOJ, the FBI. I'm not saying everybody falls into that category, certainly not. But are there enough roadblocks in these institutions that's going to frustrate the ability to see all these, uh, you know, um, sealed indictments opened? And I, I don't doubt there is a significant body of indictments that have been sealed and at some point it will be opened and eventually justice will seem to be served. But I think there's too much simplistic approach and, and a viewpoint on how this is going to happen. And that concerns me because it will just cause a huge amount of frustration in people in the in the US. I mean, remember there was the whole Nunes, you know, explosion, expose a few months back. Well, what came of that? Nothing. It all just died a death and disappeared. Now, that's not to say people should lose heart and think nothing's ever going to happen. It will do. But just don't expect things to happen as as we expect. And, and then McCabe's a great example of this because he's requested that the Senate Judiciary Committee provides him with immunity from prosecution in exchange for testifying at an upcoming congressional hearing. And that's focused on how you know, officials at the FBI and the Justice Department handled the investigation of, of the whole Hillary Clinton private email server. Now, what he's suggesting under the terms of such uh, immunity you know, or without it, you could no testimony or information provided by McKay could be used against him in a criminal case. Now, the problem is people say, well, hang on, I, I that that's not acceptable because how can he wish to have immunity in 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 terms of prosecution in respect for providing evidence? Now, there's arguments two and four against that, but Grassley he requested that several former officials appear in front of the Judiciary Committee to discuss this, you know, internal Justice Department report, which says obviously that, or is supposed to say that sources detailed mishaps surrounding the Justice Department and FBI's investigation into the handling of classified information while she was Secretary of State. I mean, Grassley deserves a lot of credit for doing so, because apparently he invited James Comey also invited the former Attorney General Loretta Lynch to testify. Um, whether they actually do is another matter. But the problem with McCabe is he's also entangled in this separate criminal investigation stemming from an earlier report from the Inspector General's office that concluded that he lied to internal investigators. Now, McCabe's denied wrongdoing, but any congressional testimony he provides could have serious implications for his criminal case. Because the argument is if McCabe's willing to testify, but because of the criminal referral, he's got to be afforded suitable legal protection. Because if this, if the committee is unwilling or on a, a, unable to obtain such an order, then McCabe would have no choice. But then he's going to invoke the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So this is what, you know, on the one hand, we say, well, actually, if we do this, then, you know, we're giving him immunity from prosecution. But in the process, what information can he provide that will assist in other aspects of this inquiry and, and then maybe other heads will roll in the process? So it's not, and I'm not suggesting McCabe should be granted immunity or shouldn't, but it shows the complexity of how difficult uh, this particular aspect of, 
on one small aspect concerning McKay. Now, of course, the question is, if he invokes the Fifth Amendment, well, lawmakers could then serve him with a subpoena. And if he continues to refuse to testify, they could pursue, you know, a contempt resolution against him and then refer the matter for prosecution uh, to the D.C.'s, you know, U.S. Attorney's Office or enforce the subpoena through civil action in a federal court. Now, I'm not saying it'll ever get to that, but if it a, does get to that, how long is that going to take? I mean, what's the process for that, for that coming about? It, I don't know. It could take years. I don't know. It might take months. I don't know how the process works in the U.S. But the point is just the sheer complexity of dealing with one aspect with one individual. Now, by all account, you know, McCabe's legal team said it's going to provide emails that demonstrates that McCabe advised Comey in October 2016 that McCabe was working with FBI colleagues to correct inaccuracies before certain media stories were published. And of course, there's a discrepancy between Comey's recollection of McCabe's statements to internal investigators about authorizing FBI officials to talk to a report about this ongoing investigation regarding the Clinton Foundation back in 2016. And that's one critical component. Now, interestingly, Grassley wrote to the FBI requesting that McCabe be released from a non-disclosure agreement also that prevents him from providing those emails amongst other records. So here you go. Here's another aspect that Grassley had to write to the FBI requesting he can do that, because if he did release them under a non-disclosure agreement, he could be prosecuted or censured for that. So there's another complication in or a fly in the ointment. Um, now, by all accounts, we are expecting this hearing to be uh, a judiciary hearing for next Monday, but it could be delayed because who knows if the Inspector General's report gets delayed because that's obviously not being made public yet. And it just shows the sheer complexity of, of the problem in dealing with someone just like McCabe, who, who from his perspective will say, well, if I'm going to provide evidence, then I want immunity so I don't incriminate myself. And, and I can see there's pros and cons and there'll be for and against arguments. And really, that's not my concern. My concern is just the sheer legal complexity of dealing with one aspect. Now, if there are thousands of indictments against people, potentially, how long is it going to take for the legal system to handle that? And then the other problem is, can you trust the legal system to handle it efficiently and correctly? And because there might be people in sealed, in sealed indictments who haven't been unsealed and might oversee cases that actually they shouldn't have any right to do so. And I'm not suggesting that's the case. And we may be getting a little bit too convoluted here. But that's the reality. That's the sheer complexity. And that's why all this, this idea of this simplistic approach that we just unseal all the indictments and all these heads will roll in five minutes. It's never going to happen that way. Absolutely, man. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Paul, we have uh, situations here uh, with the One Belt, One Road initiative. We have uh, the global economic reset. Uh, can you detail on how that is continuing to march forward? Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen sooner than a lot of people think. And how that's going to play out here in the United States, Paul? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I talk about it regularly in my the, for the podcast subscribers about aspects of how the belt and road initiative as it seems to now be university called it seems to keep morphing into different names so the chinese seem to call it the belt and road initiative so we'll we'll stick to that which is the bri now yeah there's 
But every day of every week of every month, there's just enormous developments going on. But there's but from the US's perspective, it, there's no sign of that. I mean, they, they don't have any Belt and Road Initiative investments. They've not signed any formal cooperation agreements setting out terms and conditions for a US role in the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, there are some US companies who participated on an individual basis. I wrote an article about Caterpillar on the website being one of them. But the US response to, to the, the BRI under the, even the Obama administration and the, the Trump administration were benign. But, but in both administrations, they kind of started off reasonably positively. But since round about a year ago, uh, senior U.S. officials started to take this far more critical stance of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then Washington began to explore ways to promote alternatives to Chinese financing by proposing these reforms to the U.S. development finance system and coordinating with allies and partners quite were a nation as bankrupt as the U.S. was going to, um, to finance an alternative beggar's belief. But that's what they were trying to convince people. And of course, you, you've had this downturn in Chinese-U.S. relations, and also this idea of trying to promote to the world that China's now a this competitor. You know, they're not. You know, it's not. You know, someone that we've got to be competing with and challenging at all time. The other thing is, there's not been any increase in U.S. funding for Eurasian infrastructure development pro projects either. You know, yes, the Obama administration rejected China's uh, when they asked them to, to become a founding member of the AIIB. Um, that most certainly happened, and there's no evidence of that changing under the Trump administration. And I think the whole reticence about the U.S. reflects concerns that about China's willingness to compete with the United States for regional, what they feel, economic influence, and they and they feel it's undermining the U.S. in the process. Well. China's not done anything to undermine the U.S. It's just simply gone out to nations and said, we're not going to bully you into submission. We'd like to trade with you and, and form some bilateral agreements. You know, it's great if you adopt the yuan in the process, but if you don't and you want us to pay us in U.S. dollars, don't worry, because as soon as we get the U.S. dollars, we exchange it, we buy gold with it, or we exchange it into uh, some other currency because the Chinese don't hold U.S. dollars. And they've been dumping treasuries for longer than people Remember, and in reality, they've bought no U.S. treasuries for a number of years. That's the reality, despite whatever data may suggest to the contrary. But, you know, the true fact is, though, the under the Obama administration, they never actually really critically attacked the, B, the BRI. And, uh, but, of course, they, they never actually really developed the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, of course, the Trump administration completely trashed from. And I agree with that. I think that was a very sensible decision because it was just a, a completely useless economic partnership. Um, but I think with regards to the Trump administration, I think it attached far more importance than the BRI to addressing the North Korean issue. And it's no doubt that Trump wanted uh, Xi's support in that regard. And also they've had this heavy focus on this bilateral trade imbalances, which of course is not really working out particularly well for the US or for China in that regard either. But around a year ago, that um, you know, even a year ago, the, the Chinese and the US issued a joint statement saying that the US recognized the importance of the Belt and Road Initiative. 
Um, but the belief was that was just to facilitate Xi's cooperation on these higher priority issues, such as North Korea and settling bilateral trade uh, issues. But ironically, Tillerson, of all people, back in sort of autumn last year, he gave this pretty high octane speech regarding Chinese development, finance and, um, and infrastructure development project, i.e. the Belt and Road Initiative. And he cited all these problems, saying it was failing to promote jobs properly. It was burdening states with enormous levels of debt. They were relying too heavily on foreign, i.e. Chinese workers. And and then also this idea that you, they would be set up to default and then convert debt into equity effectively. And he also argued that China's economic activities should take place in, yeah, he actually said this, in the system of international rules and norms. And, the, and in fact, that was the Belt and Road Initiative wants to define its own rules and norms. Well, let's look at the international rules and norms that the World Bank and the IMF and these organizations, which have absolutely crippled nations for decades repeatedly. Is that the kind of international rules and norms he's referring to? But it shows that, the U.S. was already back in the autumn, seriously backing or away from it. Mattis made similar remarks, talking about the one, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative being a dictatorial stance, and and then of course when uh, Trump visited Beijing in November last year, he didn't mention or endorse the Belt and Road Initiative, even though it was a topic that Xi wanted the U.S. to to, to discuss and and effectively publicly endorse. And then, and it just goes on. I mean, even when Pompeo took over from Tillerson in April, he didn't actually address the Belt Road Initiative, but he spoke about Ch China being this competitor that needed to be, you know, you know, they need to be dealt with. And then of course, the whole point is that the U.S. idea that they can fund a Belt Road Initiative alternative was never is never a reality. And then they had these diplomatic efforts to try drag the likes of India into into their sphere of influence. But of course, India's just playing games in the sense that they're all, you know, they're now buying, want to buy S-400s. They want to trade with with China and they're, they're trying to get the best of both worlds. And at some point, Modi's going to have to decide which camp he's in. And I think in the end of the day, he'll just rotate east like every other nation because India has huge economic problems itself that it can't address. By, by ignoring Russia and China in that regard. And then the problem is back, uh, you know, Trump at times has, instead of calling on the, uh, you know, the AIIB and things like that, he's come, called on the World Bank of all people to direct efforts to, to providing alternatives effectively to the Belt and Road Initiative. But of course, the Trump administration's provided no detailed roadmap for reform in that regard. And, the thing is that what's caused this whole breakdown in terms of Belt and Road Initiative, I think actually it's, it, it's not just the fact that the US sees the Chinese as, as an economic threat. I think it was because uh, the, effectively um, Beijing didn't rein in um, Pyongyang over its ballistic missile tests. It seemed to be very supportive of, of Kim Jong-un, uh, which annoyed uh, the Trump administration. And because they didn't think there was any evidence that they were trying to get them to scale back their nuclear ambitions. And also, the, I think the fact is that they've made no progress on this reducing the bilateral trade deficit, really. There's a lot of tokenism and idea that, it's, that things are happening. But in reality, I mean, the wheels were falling off back in August last year because the U.S. Trade represent 
Stiffer had launched an investigation into what they deemed unfair Chinese trade practices. So, okay, we are where we are now, but it all kicked off, what, effectively 10 months ago. And Trump's also characterized China as this economic adversary. So all in all, the, the, the question in all this is, well, at what point, what, what's the future for the U.S.? How do they, what do they actually to, do they do uh, with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative? Because at some point, yes, they're going to have to integrate uh, into it. But, you know, there's been no signs that the U.S. can obviously increase funding for infrastructure development across Asia because they simply don't have the money to do it. They've, they've you know, Trump's not offered any sort of critique of why there's problems really with the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, also in terms of, uh, you know, Therefore, the question is, what does the U.S. do? I mean, how how are they going to, you know, they've got their own internal problems. I mean, how are they going to pay for the all the increase in defense spending and large tax cuts that they passed? There's no evidence where that's going to be paid for. So the U.S. has got its own internal problems. So it's certainly in no position to fund anything. And, but the question is, it seems as though there's this huge reluctance, except for the likes of old U.S. companies like Caterpillar and GE, who've had some in investment into the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. But um, the interesting thing that's quite telling is even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce lobbied for the U.S. to be included in the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, saying, you know, the U.S., we've got some great technology management capability where we can integrate into it. And that's absolutely correct. And of course, what's not helping the U.S. in the process is even the U.S. allies and partners have adopted a very positive attitude to the Belt and Road Initiative, including, of course, the U.K. of all people who are now sort of cozying up to, to the Chinese and whether how much success they actually have, although the Chinese seem to be warming to the U.K. to some extent. You've got India, where Modi and Xi have talked about a reset in relation. You've got Abe. And Japanese firms are desperate to participate now in the Belt and Road Initiative after he realized all the, the concerns they had about transparency and debt sustainability and uh, simply were not reality. You've got Australian businesses who want to cooperate with the Belt and Road Initiative. So, I mean, the, the, all the nations that the U.S. was looking to try and form some trade agreement with, which was the Japanese, was the, the Australians, is the Indians are all sort of going, well, actually, you know, we're quite happy with the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, we'd like to still trade with you, but we're not going to, it's not an either or. So so the US really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. It has no alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. There's the realization nations like India are going to integrate. Um, and then there's the budgetary, economic and diplomatic costs of confronting China, which they're now starting to, to realize is a lot, is far more severe than they anticipated. I mean, I don't think the US is ever going to reverse on withdrawing from the TPP because it is a farce and they were absolutely right to to, to not consider that as a, as, as a viable proposition. But then you've got the 2018 midterms coming up. Then you, I mean, if we look further ahead, you've got the 2020 presidential elections. Well, that's going to impact US policy to the extent that they're going to sh shift this balance of power in, and priorities towards China. And then you've got the willingness of Congress to even fund alternatives. I mean, it's one thing for the Trump administration to go, we embrace this, and then you're gonna to have to convince Congress, well, actually, we want to divert money into the Belt and Road initiatives. How much of Congress is gonna even approve of that? And perhaps tellingly, the last comment, ironically, 
was something on, and I'd actually forgotten about this, but it came to mind the other day, was when John Kerry said, of all people, said around about six months ago in an interview that, you know, the U.S. and China should be partners and we should, the U.S. should have been involved in the Belt Road Initiative and the AIB. And he actually apparently at one point said that to Xi, but somehow the whole wheels of that just fell off and it never happened. And this is what the U.S. is doing. It's not actually embracing it. And I think the Trump administration's biggest problem to embrace it is, is, is just the backlash that he's going to get from Congress and probably the Senate and who knows where else in the process. But and, and, and I think they are trying to fight a trade war they can't win and China doesn't want to win it and no one's going to end up winning. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of the Korean Peninsula. And that's why I said it's so critical, because that might get start to get things back on track with the Chinese. And maybe there's a way they can break this down, because the U.S. has to be part of the Belt Road Initiative. Otherwise, in the future, it's going to flounder, because with a devalued dollar, it's going to rely on an export market. It's going to have to have, because, you know, create a really strong manufacturing base. And there because without it, it's going to have hyperinflationary imports. So if it needs to have this in, this manufacturing base, it needs to be able to manu, you know, export these products to, for example, China. Well, if you're going to have trade wars and spats over the Spratly Islands and everything else, the Chinese might just quite legitimately say, do you know what? We're, just going to, we're not going to trade with you. And by the way, we've just relaxed all these tariffs on umpteen hundreds of different products for the whole world. Well, Maybe we won't apply that to you as the United States if you carry on doing what we're doing. By the way, we, we're your biggest creditor. You know, the list goes on. And, but this idea of trying to bully the Chinese is just ridiculous. And it has to stop. And at some Paul, point, there has know, to be the real... Yeah. It, it always makes sense, you know, when uh, a, a, a debtor nation bullies its creditor. That always works out well, Paul. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And... and this is the part I, do, I just don't understand. I mean, if they, you know, they didn't need to get involved this trade spat with the Chinese. We've said it many times, but it has to end. Yeah, the cooperation with regards to the Korean Peninsula makes sense. But of course, at the end of the day, who doesn't the cabal elements, the deep state, the neocon elements, they don't want any trade agreement with the Chinese. They want the war footing to be maintained in North Korea. Because if they don't, and I mean, if, if that gets resolved, the Korean Peninsula has unification. The U.S. has no reason to be here, and Trump will be very pleased about that because he can take all his forces out, et cetera, and save the, the U.S. economy. Well, who knows what the annual budget is just for maintaining hundreds of bases around the world. I mean, it must be astronomic. So they can start saving money. They don't need to be there. It serves absolutely no purpose. The only purpose it serves is for the neocons, deep state cabal, element to try and f keep fermenting war around the world and have a reason to have a bogeyman be it uh, north korea iran or whoever else so it serves no purpose to for the trump administration or the u.s economy or the u.s people to be there so this is why it's really important that these matters start to be addressed and just you know don't agree with the chinese that we're not going to have a trade war and let's get rid of the tariffs and then five minutes later start slapping tariffs on them again I mean, it's just not going to work on, on any level. And you know, all it's going to do is create more distrust, more isolation of the U.S. And, and precisely for reasons that they don't need to do it. Yeah, the U.S. is going to have big enough problems addressing the, the, 
the, the, the whole end of the dollar and what that's going to do to the US economy and the US nation. It's got enough problems internally to manage without antagonizing the very people it needs to uh, develop relations with them. We, I know we've emphasized this point many times, but we can't emphasize it enough because we're just seeing the same nonsensical approach and attitude to the Chinese. I mean, Russia's a different ball game. We know full well that Trump wants to uh, have solid relations with the Russians, but we know that the whole Mueller investigation, the whole Russophobic nonsense makes that virtually impossible. And I can perfectly understand why why the US has adopted that attitude, although they didn't need to go as far as implementing more sanctions against the, the Russia for, for no reason. That that was a retrograde step. But I can perfectly see why they do that. But with China, there's no reason to do this. It's, it's completely a fool's errand to do so. And, but they continue to do it, and it's it's just going to create more and more problems for the US domestically because of how its ability to, to generate and, and and have a manufacturing base. Because the question is, who's going to finance this manufacturing base? Where's the money going to come from? I mean, the US is selling its strategic oil reserves to, to pay for things to the tune of a few billion dollars. That shows the, the economically the, the mess they're in. So they're going to need a huge amount of internal investment to, to stimulate that growth and and also rebuild all the infrastructure because they're going to need the infrastructure to to support this huge requirement for the rebirth of its uh, manufacturing base in the process so these are all very obvious statements but there's no one inside the trump administration who seems to be listening to to those obvious arguments and china you know it's already said to the us if you dispense with these these ridiculous tariffs and trade war effectively you know we'll we'll give you more deals we'll we'll try and narrow the gap we can you know maybe there's we can you know we can import some more stuff in the process you know to the tune maybe 10 20 30 billion dollars which will help to narrow the gap so china's very happy to do it but they're not going to get bullied into doing it and and that's the thing you know that i, th I think trump sometimes i've said it he just treats everything like a business deal and you can't treat nations as business deals because it just never works you, know, you might be able to bully nations or bully people in terms of tra of deals um in terms of business and commerce to some extent of course that that's entirely possible and bullying might be the wrong word but you don't do it with nations like china because they'll simply just put their back up and they'll they'll look for alternatives which of course they can easily find in terms yeah. of trade particularly yeah Paul, we're at the end of the program. Um, one more time, if you could uh, give out where people could find you, your social media, and how they can uh, keep abreast of the latest developments. Go yeah, ahead. well, thank you very much. I mean, obviously, the website, the Sirius Report, S-I-R-I-U-S.com. There's a lot of free material on there. There's well over 100 uh, documents. We do, obviously, you've got for access to all the, the, the shows we've done, and Yes, we have the premium content. Some people have been complaining about why do we charge for it? Well, the simple fact is we tried to not charge for it and use YouTube and other platforms, and they immediately in 10 minutes completely vetoed us allowing to do that. And at the end of the day, like everyone else, we have bills to pay, so we have to some way generate money to do this. And we think the cost of $4.75 a month is 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 cheap and compared to our peers it's extremely cheap a lot of them charge three four five times as much as that and we do give a huge amount of information on on a weekly basis 
and it's backed up. It's it's not just you know verbatim information. We back it up with analysis. We provide intelligence. We provide uh, sources of information you wouldn't get elsewhere. And if you listen to them, we largely have been proven to be correct in everything we've discussed in well over eighteen months. So, and that's the proof of the pudding is in what you discuss is what's the reality. How does it pan out? What happened? So, and that's why we feel it's good value for money. And we'd like you know, people to subscribe in the process. And we've kept the cost cheap to try and encourage more people to subscribe rather than trying to make it more expensive, which would, I think, would have meant a lot of people would have said, well, we simply can't afford to do this. So I understand that in the process. But we'd like people to subscribe because it allows us to do what we do. And, um, and we're very grateful for everyone who has and continues to support us. And obviously for Rogue Money as well, because, you know, they, they, they you know, we, we started well, when we started when we got a lot more interest in what we're doing. But in relative terms, we're still largely unknown. I mean, we most people don't even know we exist, it would seem. So but there's not a lot we can do about that. We you know, I'm sorry to say, but I think there's people out there who just don't like reality. They want to hear they want to hear a you know, a glossy story of what's going on. They're not they don't really want to hear the reality in which at the end of the day, we've always said the cabal's dead and buried. I said it back in 2012, and people laughed at me because it's a long process. And yes, they are going to flounder and they will collapse in, in and implode in totality. And eventually, the US will be a strong nation amongst equals. But this is going to take a long time. It's a long, drawn-out process. Yeah, it's there's no shortcuts to this. And Trump knows this. Trump right. knew when he took over what he was, you know, in that regard, that it was a really difficult long drawn out process and he yeah he's made some mistakes but he deserves a hell of a lot of credit and we'll praise him where praise is due but we're going to be critical of him where he where we feel he's made mistakes and because i'm not partisan to anyone i don't care about politics i'm not interested in politics in my own country because it's all it's completely divisive but i mean i think trump is you know he may be notionally republican but i don't think he is at all he's more really an independent trying to fight a system that exists inside his own Republican Party, and he's had so much, you know, uh, backlash from within his own ranks. Never mind from the Democrats. But now I have no interest in politics in that regard because it serves no purpose. It never has, and it never will. And I, that's what I have a bit of fear of: is people are still couching everything in terms of the Republicans and Democrats. Well, neither party has served the U.S. people for decades. I mean, when was the last real? genuine u.s pressure president was it arguably it was probably uh kennedy to some extent nixon tried to do some things people will disagree but you know, we haven't had a proper u.s president in decades and i think trump's the, is the best bet at the moment i mean clinton was never the, the alternative but and he he's very has a very difficult job but he has made some mistakes and that's because you know, in terms of foreign policy because of the people i don't know who who convinced him to put bolton in place but Really, that was just a highly retrograde step and should never have happened. Yep, absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for being on. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Again, uh, subscribe, like, comment, and share. And uh, check out the seriousreport.com. With that being said, CJ, take it away.